Ann. Did you do roll call for us? Yes. Uh, Trustee Avalada is here. Uh, Trustee Banerjee, here. Trustee Charland, here. Trustee Schwinn, here. Trustee DeVries, here. And Trustee Peterson is absent today. We have a quorum. Great, thank you. Uh, first item is action item related to minutes. We have a motion for approval. I move. Second. Okay, moved and seconded. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Thank you. On information discussion items, operating reports. Our interim CFO. Great. Okay. Um, so I'm going to cover the September 2018 highlights from the financials, and then we'll go into um, a little bit of a discussion on Alameda Hospital finances. So um, inpatient activity continued to be strong in September. Acute patient days were 5.2% above budget for the month, 6.5% um, year-to-date, and 5% over prior year. Um, while the acute discharges were above budget by 2% year-to-date, the average length of stay um, was above budget by 4.4% or 0.2 days, um, and it's 6.5% above the prior year. So overall, patients are staying um, longer. Post-acute days were 0.3% below budget for the month, but I want to note that the budget increased um, in September, and that year-to-date uh, post-acute days were 0.6% above budget and 2.3% above the prior year. Clinic visits were 10.3% below budget for the month and 3.4% below budget year-to-date. Um, 0.5% above the prior year. And I want to comment on the, the large variance for the month. Um, it looks like there was a problem in the way that the budget was spread um, because while it took seasonality into account, it didn't take fully into account the number of clinic days in a month. Um, and so if you, if you recall, in July, July we were over budget. Um, in August, we were under budget by 3.2%, and now we're significantly below budget. And if, but if you look year to date, we're 3.4% um, below budget. And this actually corresponds with the change in the number of clinic days, you know, basically the Monday through Friday non-holiday days um, in a specific month. And so if you, you know, this year, year to date, we had the same number of clinic days in the period as before, um, but compared to last year, um, July had one more day, August had the same amount of days, and September had one less day. So it's a, it's a little bit misleading for the current month, but if you look year to date, we are still 3.4% um, below budget, and that's consistent with the August variance. And do the holidays in the next several months impact this projection there? You know, I don't, we'll have to look. I mean, we're not going to respread the clinic visits. Um, they were done seasonally, but the um, we may have a variance on a month-to-month -month basis if there is a number of, you know, days in the month, weekdays in the month. So we'll, we'll notice that and we'll bring it up as in a discussion. Sorry. Is it already out? Excellent. Oh, thank you. Uh, Louise may say something in the operating report, but it is, I mean, as Nessie's saying, year-to-date we are um, 
we are below budget on uh, visits for the year. Uh, I, I think a, a big part of that is attributed to we, we raised the number of anticipated clinic visits uh, for the year uh, based off of uh, demand, but also capacity, uh, capacity um, in many cases predicated off of the new clinic templates that were put in place that opened up the availability of, of, of more slots. And in some cases, those slots are, um, you know, like for new example, I we're seeing holes in the uh, visits, uh, but are in a clinic that was used, used to being, you know, well-to-well full, and uh, the number of visits is uh, sort of, it looks like uh, month over month or year over year, about the same. And so that now there are more slots available, and those slots, uh, uh, they're, they're having challenges filling those slots with the available um, uh, sort of capacity of patients who are in the service area, uh, as well as sort of a beneficial thing, the open uh, slots in other places now has created more access in some sites like Hayward, where people were commuting down to Newark, and they're now uh, going to Hayward because of closer to them. So uh, on balance, we still have an opportunity here that we're continuing to look at. Sounds like a settling out that's happening right now. I think a little bit of settling out and then a little bit of kind of uh, other activity. So, you know, not just the uh, clinic um, templates, but also as we move towards capitation and focusing on uh, getting in that impaneled population for their initial health assessments or their uh, primary care visits because we had, as we said, when we went to capitation, they alliance pointed out to us that the number of average visits per member per year for the patients who were capitated in our uh, subset were uh, lower than the rest of the market. And so it uh, seems so, somewhat counterintuitive to uh, going to capitation, but there was a effort from their uh, vantage point or an opportunity they saw for us to see uh, those patients uh, more on average, not necessarily for every individual patient. So there's a lot of effort to work with that particular patient population, as well as um, uh, sort of change the practice of automatically rebooking patients like every six months and things like that and as we cycle through and get closer to six months of being uh, on this new process we're starting to see those holes kind of show up so so it is a lot of sort of settling that then will lead to what do you do about that now that you've discovered this new opportunity right makes sense just the difference between the rvus and and the visits it seems to be a pretty wide discrepancy there. Well, the physician RVUs includes more than just the clinic visits. Right. So it includes surgeries, you know, a lot of different things. So, um, and, and one of the other things I wanted to mention about RVUs is that um, sometimes those, the, um, the visits or the physician charges get held up in um, uh, edits, uh -huh. um, so for coding or, or things that are needed, and so some sometimes the you know the RVUs and the timing um, of when they hit the, the charge finally hits the GL is is a little off. Um, so like you'll see um, if you look at the revenues, outpatient revenues are below budget, inpatient revenues are um, above budget, which is consistent with the activity that report, but. Um, Physician RVUs are below budget reported here, but the charges are actually above budget. Mm -hmm. So sometimes there's a, a cumulative effect of when things hit. Okay. So, um, question Did the, the clinic visits are ambulatory primary care, right? Not specialty clinics? The clinic visits include specialty, specialty in both. So, for the primary, do all of the facilities now have same day? 
privileges uh, uh, when they were doing the templates. I thought that there were options for same day visits as well, so that's so many. So I, I believe that is the case. Yeah, the, what, what the new templates opened up like more slots, and yes. so uh, they're, they're cre it created more um, capacity so that there are instances where a patient can call or um, uh, be uh, referred to have a visit, and they can actually have an availability on that same day. So, so it's not a, I don't think it's a construct like our clinic upstairs where it is it is exclusively set up as a same day access but now our primary care clinics have more availability and so you there is more opportunity for patients to have same day appointments that's great okay. Just had a, sorry, just a question um, on the sort of the strategy back to moving towards capitation. If we're looking at um, things that are outside of capitation and primary care, where there might be opportunities to maximize there. Uh, yeah. So, so this uh, the comments that we only do a primary care cap, and we are still rolling it out. Uh, um, but yeah, no. There, when you when I, I apologize because Luis is going to point some of this out when it gets to the operating report. But you'll see kind of what's happening in primary and specialty, and there is opportunity in both spaces. And so, uh, some of the uh, variants that we're seeing in specialty has nothing to do with the primary care uh, capitation. It has a little bit to do with the templates uh, still, and also you know things like the routine things like providers here or. Not or um, uh, turnover in providers or some other sort of routine operational thing that might be occurring. But yeah, we're, we're not just exclusively focusing on the capitated population. Uh, I just cited that as kind of one of the factors that's impacting some of our um, uh, volume uh, activity or volume variance uh, in the clinic space so far. But I'll let him he'll speak more to it when we get to the operating report. Great. Okay, um, and then just a note too that um, that emergency room visits continue to be below budget. So, is there any? Uh, do you know why that is? AC. No. <laughs> okay. Just short answer. Uh, I mean, it's up. Uh, we're still waiting. I think we're waiting. Uh, the hospital council uh, um, gives us uh, quarterly data about a month or so after a quarter ends that uh, uh, shows us what's happening across the markets uh, uh, as it, uh, um, I think it's based off of OSPROT reports. And so we're able to then look back and see what, hap what trends happen in our space relative to the rest of the market and see, and historically, so we, I think we shared with you, we've seen that trend be the case across um, just about every acute facility in Alameda County. And so we can speculate as to what, you know, what, what maybe some positive points to that, which is, you know, more people are covered and they're getting more access and, and you know, they're not using uh, EVs uh, uh, as much. Um, uh, and maybe other reasons uh, that we can speculate as well, but um, it, it tends to, I guess, stands to reason that it, if you're seeing that across the board, and we, I think uh, this year, I said this the last time, but I think we, we budgeted flat, but we're seeing it decline. Um, um, so, yeah, that's that's our best guess at this point. But now we'll we'll have to see once we get this data what happened in the last quarter and if there's a difference in what we're experiencing versus what others are experiencing. What's the time frame for getting that information? Uh, so quarterly, and I think we tend to get them like a month or two months, a month to two months after the quarter's over. So it should be July through September, right? August, September that we we'll probably get in this month. I see. Yeah. Is it something we get agendas next month? Uh, potentially for a report. Yeah, just it, it specifically for ED trends. Uh, yeah. It, it, it just, oh, it's what do we, yeah, do you want to speak to it? Yeah. 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 Y
2017 data that is individually from Oshkosh's perspective. Uh, we provided this to you in November last year. My intention was to do the same this year, but the delay from Oshkosh. So as soon as we have that, we'll be casting the UV trends overall. The hospital comes with data is a little limited because of the way it's collected and presented. Uh, the Oshkosh data would give us more of a view into pyramids and uh, things like that that are more important from our lens to see and how they impact the that's helpful. Thank you. Thank you for the clarification. So the, OSPO, the hospital council data isn't, um, it isn't a slice of the OSPOD data, or it isn't based off of it. It is what is submitted to OSHPOD, but the OSHPOD data is more comprehensive. Got it. Okay. Thank you. So January will be a realistic expectation. Yes, that's fine. Great. Thank you. Okay. So moving on. Um, Net, as, as we've seen in the last couple of months, the net patient services revenue is under budget, and it's consistent with the 27 to $29 million annual shortfall we've projected. Um, so in um, supplemental revenues, though, because of our contract that we have in place now with Alameda County regarding the treatment of the capital cost reimbursement that for the county-owned buildings, we're actually recognizing $4.4 million of um, reimbursement for fiscal year 16. Fiscal year 16 is the first year that and, and under this agreement that's actually been finalized and that typically we would it would be finalized at June 30th. We'd have a calculation of the amount that we owe them and then we'd have to pay that to them. So we, this is the first year that we um, have that information finalized. We're booking it. We're going to be booking estimated amounts as we go through and do the true up amounts to get that so that basically by the end of the year we'll be up to date uh, but we have to go through and do those calculations um, so that is coming through and it's showing as net operating revenue however the transfer out is actually showing as a non-operating expense so on the financials it, um, it, I only wanted to do kind of one period at a time so that we can so you can get used to seeing it this way um, but you'll see that um, the operating margin is showing 7% for the month yet the EBITDA margin is 3.4% so while operating is showing over budget the EBITDA is actually showing under budget and it's really more of what we would have expected to see for the month um, September is actually the first month where the expenses were not enough under budget to fully offset the revenue shortfall. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that later under the expenses. But basically, the expenses were under budget by $1.6 million compared to revenues being under by $2.7 million. So we would expect to see that we would be about a million dollars um, under budget. Um, and then just to note also the, the capital cost, the recognition of that revenue and the transfer out were not included in the fiscal year 19 operating budget. So we're going to see this constant, you know, variance um, associated with that. Um, and then overall, the, if you look at the bottom, bottom line, the net... Um, income is actually over budget by $2 million for the month and year-to-date, and that's due to a reduction in the long-term portion of the pension expense that's being recognized. <clears throat> so this is just a closer look at revenues, which we pretty much already just discussed. Um, gross patient revenues were consistent with activity for the month and patient above budget, uh, patient below budget. Um, the, 
year-to-date professional charges, you can see, are 40.8% above the prior year. Um, so it's, that's you know great. You can see that we're really improving and um, getting the physician charge captured only. Um, the overall, the gross charges are about 7.8% above the prior year. And as you recall, the, the budget included a 2.4% overall price increase. So, um, you know, given the activity, we can see that, you know, net patient services revenue is 5.1% um, above the prior year as well. Supplemental revenue is right on budget, except for that $4.4 million in capital cost reimbursement claiming. And we had actually, because of the way we have to, we've done the claiming, and we um, we hadn't actually been approved through appeals and, and all that stuff, we actually had that money reserved under AB 915, um, and, and that's why it's being brought in as supplemental revenue. Some of it is actually Medi-Cal, inpatient, um, some of it is, you know, SNF supplemental, there's different pieces, but we brought the whole thing in because we had reserved it under the AB 915 um, in our books. So on the expense side, um, FTEs were under budget by 162 FTEs, or 3.7% in September. Uh, total labor expenses, there were point. Um, 8 million or 1.3 percent over under budget. Sorry, um, the year-to-date variance of 127 FTEs was 2.9 percent um, under budget. But if you look at labor expense, it was only um, it was 3.3 million or 1.9 percent under budget. So we would ex have expected it to be you know closer to the same percentage as the FTEs. Um, in September, we did have a, a $222,000 payment for a settlement on missed breaks and, and lunches. Um, and that wasn't really quite enough for the difference. So investigation into that variance kind of determined that there was a little bit of an issue with the way the budget was spread um, that didn't appropriately account for um, holiday and overtime pay, but, but enough of a differential for those periods. So um, basically, uh, we're going to be respreading the budget on a go-forward basis from November or from, from October on so that we have the proper accounting for that. So hopefully we won't see that kind of a variance um, going forward. And then the other thing is that in, um, note that in employee benefits in July, we were over budget about $1.2 million um, due to the large claims that came through on our self-funded um, medical plan. So over time, we should see that um, even out and hopefully have some reinsurance um, to, to offset that, that amount. Um, both of our uh, worked hours per adjusted patient, uh, well, our work hours per adjusted patient day is below budget and below prior year, which is great. The um, uh, compensation ratio is showing at 64.5%, which is really quite a bit under the 66.6% for the budget. Um, but some of that is, it's kind of, um, it, it's because of the additional revenue from that, uh, sorry, for the additional revenue from the capital cost is throwing that ratio off because it's taking it as a percentage of total operating revenues. So if you take that out, 
we're actually, compensation ratio is actually a little bit above um, what the budget is. It's like 67.8 versus 66.6. Um, and then all of the expenses are under budget on a year-to-date basis, um, which is great. And um, executive management team is still, you know, focusing very, uh, uh, you know, a great effort on trying to make sure that we can pin down um, enough of budget reductions to make sure that we can stay uh, within the budget given our revenue challenges for this year. So. From a balance sheet perspective, um, you know, our net day AR days have dropped. Um, gross AR days have increased since year-end um, in the prior month. We have had some staffing issues working some of the system holds and on charges and stuff that are through the system. Um, the days in accounts payable have continued to decrease, and we continue to remain um, compliant with the uh, net negative balance in our line of credit with the county. Uh, can I get you to this on? Uh, jump back. I, you, you didn't do it up here, but you, you included the, the um, paid FDE chart and the revenue and expense trend chart oh, packet. Huh? And I just, um, and you may have explained this to me in a prior month and I forget, but why did you have such a radical drop in revenue from April and May um, and then it jumped back up? I, just, I, I can't that remember. Was a summer surprise. Well, that, that was the issue that we had. I simply are there that I feel like point out it is surprising how our paid FDE rate has gone down, overall paid FDEs has gone really um, dramatically down or consistently trended down uh, yeah. over the past year and and our expenses have too. It's just uh, yeah. Sorry, the said, said a lot. Um, okay, and then I just wanted to take a minute to acknowledge um, Patient Financial Services on the, the great work that they've been doing in collecting cash. Um, cash collected has been consistently higher than the prior year. And year-to-date through September, you can see the cash collected is $30 million um, over the prior year at the same period. Um, and then finally, I just wanted to say, you know, normally I would have had the updated forecast and the 12-month rolling forecast. Um, however, I used the budget spread as a basis for that um, going forward, and which I adjust obviously the known things. Um, and since we're changing the budget, um, I don't, I didn't have it for um, not changing the budget, but just changing the spread of the budget going forward. Um, and so I'm going to um, submit those updated projections so that we'll have it before the full board meeting. Great. I would just note that uh, $30 million is uh, three even points. That's a big deal. Let's compliment the staff for that work. Yeah. Um, I would also note that um, still concerning to me that net patient revenue is lagging. It would have been nice to be surprised about that, but your projections were correct, Nancy. And we're basically relying on supplemental to make up the difference. And I just want to say to the rest of the committee and public is that supplemental is very uh, much, it's much more susceptible to the winds of uh, the economy. Uh, measure A, for example, the place where we acknowledge, um, you know, it could be $20 million less easily 
with a major recession. Yeah. That was the diff that happened in 2009. Um, so that's uh, two gigabit points. <laughs> so, uh, thank you, uh, Trustee. Um, just uh, well, I think uh, I think your point is still germane. Uh, uh, I would uh, maybe just uh, offer a slightly different perspective. Uh, the supplementals uh, are, are are as as you described them, but as far as uh, this year's performance, they are to budget. So it's not, an, you know, we haven't had an overperformance on supplemental that's offsetting the uh, the uh, underperformance from budget for the net patient revenue. Uh, it's really more of the expense management uh, that we really uh, uh, try to, to, yeah. to make sure. And that goes to the piece around managing the FTEs to benchmark and uh, the rest of the expense uh, reduction efforts that we're continuing to do to try to close that uh, gap or continue to have that gap closure and uh, uh, many of you will recall um, uh, this time last year uh, we were we were running well below uh, performance some of that predicated on some of the uh, challenges we have with budgeting in terms of like FTE uh, uh, expenses uh, being higher than what we uh, budgeted uh, uh, as well as uh, some of the revenue collections and as this is pointing out the team is doing a much better job there but your point is still valid that is really more the collection ratio that uh, that remember we had about a point percentage uh, or two higher than what uh, was was our trend and, and because we had already baked that into the budget now we're just mm -hmm. it's coming to fruition I, I agree with you that I would have loved a pleasant surprise so far that doesn't seem to be forthcoming so we'll continue to try to, to find them though yeah I appreciate the clarification I do you know the point about supplemental uh, well your clarification's important it it's a vulnerability that we have absolutely that I want us to continue to it's sort of uh, Manna that comes out of the sky, and we take it for granted. It yeah. could, it could change rapidly with an economic shift, and we're due for an economic shift. I, I think you're right, uh, and I would say even more so than uh, even an economic shift is, it's the, the, the program, right? So we have a program now that is in place to 2020, and uh, no indication of what's going to replace that at this point. And user, I mean, this is not uncommon that we get closer to the end of the program, and we're we're trying to sense the way this has been in place and we're still trying to figure out what it will be, but I think the more in the other uh, times that this has happened, the last two times it's occurred, more damages than what it will be and then whether and when it will get figured out, whereas right now we're just sort of in a holding pattern. Uh, maybe now that the election has happened and um, it was a big shocker, but Gavin Newsom won. Uh, and so now we'll have to figure out kind of what, what is the direction of his administration and what that means for the future of the waiver or whatever will be in its place. Right. Also, also to consider the, some of the assumptions that were made in the budget process for some programs that may or may not completely materialize. Correct. So and that's it keeps wanting it out. Like, you know, where, whereas the waiver, Prime, GPP, Open that's all they did. Uh, EPP and QIP are only approved for the last year, and we're, we're expecting the subsequent approval and hopefully multi-year, but um, as is everyone, but it's point in fact not approved yet, so you're right. And the GMU, that's right. Thank you. Yeah, well, um, I, I mean, I've, I've made this point before. I mean, don't most public hospitals survive on supplemental of some form? Um, it would be interesting to see year over year over a 10 year period what percentage of, of total revenue is actually supplemental mana from the sky, as you put it. Because even without measure A, I think most public systems have to rely on some supplemental, right? I mean, 
Yeah, for decades. Yeah. So, so I mean, it's just a combination of what they are. So this, some of them are federal, some of them are local. But I think yeah. my point about the year-over-year -year percentage, it, right. it would be helpful to know uh, in years where, where a system hits a dividend or whatever, that what what's a percentage of our total revenue that's supplemental that we should want? Like, what should a supplemental goal be um, so that we can track that based, you know, based on what it is? So that if net patient service revenue is down, but we expect that, we expect supplemental to, to cover it, you know, um, it would feel less dire. Yeah, but then some of the supplemental, the mechanisms or the rationale for getting the supplementals are also changing because, because of that. Uh, with this, you've got to show the outcomes to get what you do, right. so you don't get so. If we just get, go back a few years, some of them were not so dependent on the outcomes. It was if you did something, you got money for it. Yeah. Not, not that did you make a difference. Yeah. That's that's the other compounding yeah. factor for us. Yeah, and I do think actually, maybe a bit. Ch I don't, I'd love uh, Nancy's perspective on this, but um, maybe a bit challenging to sort of set a sort of an ideal target of, of supplemental funding, because it really is, I mean, the supplemental funds exist because the rates are low. Right. If you had reasonable rates, you wouldn't need supplemental funding uh, um, uh, to cover the population that we serve. Right. Uh, so it's kind of predicated on that. It's not really, I mean, it would be, uh, it would be uh, a little, uh, probably, uh, uh, reverse thinking to say that we can we can never live off of that patient service revenues with the rates being what they are. Um, and, and that notwithstanding, some of the supplemental pro, uh, programs aren't tied to sort of the rates at all. They're more like Measure A. It has nothing to do with our rates, except that the county recognizes or the taxpayers recognize that uh, these um, um, programs that we run are expensive programs that are more, uh, you know, not uh, under reimbursement, so they have to or they agree to do this. And, and in many other counties have similar types of things, or they'll do it for like trauma or other sorts of things that are more targeted. So, so it's yeah. kind of tough to think about what a target might be. But well, I guess not, but not a projection, but a, a, an historic a look back would, would tell us what, what's been typical, or maybe yeah. does fluctuate dramatically. I don't, I don't know what we're rated, yeah. but over a 10 year period, what, what's typical? Uh, what, are, what are other systems doing? What are other systems expecting out of this, right? Is there some sort of benchmark out there or some sort of comparison that we can say, well, yeah, we're within the ballpark of the rest of our industry? I don't know. Well, I mean, the only thing that we can compare ourselves to is the other public hospitals. So, um, you know, to the extent that we could gather that information, we could do a comparison. Yeah. Well, this is a comparison to our own. Well, the programs are changing. Right. Right. So it depends on the dynamic right. over time. So I think you know we're probably all struggling, like kind of with the same. Well, what do we expect the future to be? Yeah. Should we set some sort of target, some sort of benchmark? Yeah. You know, is there some way to to talk to some of our other like public hospitals? Yeah. Networks? And it probably have to be under like similar constructs. So you know, we couldn't compare ourselves to say like a state like Texas, where there are other public hospitals, because. You know, the, the, the types of supplemental, they have some supplementals, but then yeah. we have some other ones that we don't have, and then their approach and philosophies around these are different. So, but in California, in California we may. And then the other thing is, is internally for us, so as uh, Trustee Benedict was pointing out, historically, uh, um, you know, the, the supplementals were basically, uh, a lot of them were to cover your, your un, uh, uncompensated costs, and they weren't fee-for-service, but he said a lot of our uh, systems didn't necessarily uh, invest in robust 
revenue cycle collection efforts. Not that I didn't do any of it, but it was like, if I don't get the costs, I get to report them, I'll get the supplementals, and you know, it'll be fine. So some of even a trend for us uh, will we'll, we'll bring in, as you know, uh, because of Victoria and Report and others, that we've had some opportunity on improving our web cycle processes. And so that trend will be skewed by some of the work that we did internally to shift that scale sure. as well, not necessarily just what's happening with the programs. And I would just add that sometimes the, the changes in the programs, for example, you know, EPP and QIP were put in place to replace supplementals that we were getting in another form. Well, they changed, when they changed the program, you know, CAPH works on behalf of the public hospitals with the state to try and put these things into place. Right. And overall, we may have in terms of the, the systems overall may have been whole, kept whole or maybe done a little better, but actually Alameda, um, through EPP and QIP, we actually are taking a hit um, from the way we, what we used to get to what we currently get for, for various reasons. So, well, you know, and, and some other systems may be doing much better. So, you know, that's that's, that's another thing that comes into play. There should be some way of working to see how everybody is doing, right, overall. There is. I just don't. I, I don't know how much applicability. It'll sure. Have. It'll, it'll be context, but the applicability. Yeah. And then the last thing I was saying is, um, uh, remember, for us, uh, for quite some time, uh, we were reporting uh, MCE cost dollars. I think it was as net patient service revenue, mm -hmm. and then we uh, revisited kind of the rationale there, and then flipped that to supplemental. So again, if you look at our trend, you're going to see that big flip as well. So there will be a lot of narratives behind this, and in the context of great education, I, I don't know how much uh, sort of, uh, what do you say, it was great information. I don't know what kind of knowledge we'll get from that. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. Okay. So um, after noticing that there was a decline in the net reported for Alameda Hospital, Finance Committee had asked that we do a deeper dive into Alameda Hospital's finances. So, Nancy, if I, if I could, maybe we can add a little more context okay. to that. Yeah, thank you. Sure. No, right, this is one for, and I thank Nancy for, for doing the entire heavy lift of really narrowing this down and providing uh, this, this assessment of the last couple of fiscal years. But uh, just to give the, the, the board members a, a some additional history and context, this was something that came up uh, earlier this year as a result of our transition of reporting um, our income statement and our financials at a consolidated level because of the complexities of everything we just talked about with the supplementals, the allocations, you know, the net patient service revenues, things of that nature. And so because in the past uh, the, these allocations were more of a, a, an estimate than a science, there was, you know, there was you know, just allocations made to the different facilities that was painting a picture that was not necessarily completely accurate by sight. The consolidated statement as a whole has always been accurate, and it's part of the audited financials, and that's what's there. But when you started trying to break down, and how did Alameda do versus San Leandro versus Highland, when they started looking at doing some of those allocations, that's where the, the science went out the window, and, and, and it just became more... You know, just based on, on historical data or information, things of that nature. And so when we identified that and, and, and uh, you know, Nancy uh, uh, and, and I started working very closely together, I, I was concerned that, you know, when we were, when I was reporting some of this information specifically to the district board of Alameda, 
the historical information that was being presented was painting a picture that was not necessarily completely accurate with what was being um, uh, seen as an actual. And so I then at that point made a change and said, you know what, we're no longer going to be reporting financials at the site level. We'll be providing the income statement at a consolidated level, but we will continue to provide uh, site-specific performance related to volumes and expenses. Those things that we know are completely accurate, we know exactly what volumes we saw at each site and what expenses were to manage that volume. And so when we started doing that, the question came up in the, in the sense of, well, wait a minute, well, well, how is Alameda doing? Because we need to start setting aside some reserves for Alameda Hospital. And we said, well, you know what, we'll, we'll do a deep dive, we'll have that as a deliverable, and so as part of the finance committee under the previous chair, there was a request to put this together and for us to kind of start looking at, well, what is the true performance of Alameda Hospital? So that's kind of the context and the history of why we had to do this. And our plan is to then we'll be sharing the same information with the district board to make sure that we level so that we understand exactly where we're at from an operational perspective. Right. Oh, that hasn't been shared yet. No, sir. It'll be on December 10th. Yeah, I just point out that when we switched it, as part of our strategic plan a couple of years ago to SBUs, the site-specific performance really doesn't become relevant because it, you've got ambulatory, you've got acute, you've got like, right? So, uh, and so, so from our system perspective, this isn't necessarily relevant, but I guess it's relevant to the district board because... It's their hospital. Is that basically it? Yes, sir. That plus through the JPA, there was a uh, there was an understanding that uh, if there was favorable uh, uh, operating performance for Alameda Hospital as a discrete entity, that that uh, favorable performance could be a basis for set asides for uh, future capital needs uh, for the campus. Even from their district. But honestly, yeah, we, because everything effectively became consolidated from our, our vantage point, it didn't, as Lewis was saying, it didn't make sense to do it. And, you know, basically, it was somewhat in fairness to them, uh, until we uh, finished the plan and went to ask the model, we did continue to report in a way that uh, Lewis describes that was a little less uh, science than art uh, with respect to the revenues and on the expense side, the indirect expenses, the system-related expenses being allocated to all the campuses. And so uh, that did give the impression uh, to the uh, to individuals that uh, certain campuses were uh, performing more favorably than others. And we would often, even under the prior CFO, caveat this is like, don't, you can't look at it in that way because it's not designed to do that. It was just a kind of back of the envelope without any consideration for there being uh, that much degree of accuracy because from a larger reporting perspective, this was not something we needed to do. And so uh, we, we found ourselves having to kind of come back and clarify the record in a more uh, uh, discreet way, and, and that's you know, the justification for this. Great. Thank so you. I guess I just wanted some further clarification on the notion that the SBU, moving to SBU, kind of takes the site-based look kind of a little out the window because I, I'm trying to understand, so what you mentioned, looking at um, volumes and expenses, but then the whole other piece about like supplemental, all the other programs and things like that, is there an attempt to try to allocate by site based on who we're seeing in the payer mix, because I know payer mixes are probably different site to site, or are we right. saying we're not actually looking at it that way? So the largest, so, and I'll let Nancy kind of speak to that a little bit more, but what I will say is that, so to, and to be very clear, which is a very good question, the, 
what we decided to do was we know exactly what services were provided based on the volumes within the facility. As a result of that, we can very, very distinctly identify what was the net patient service revenues as a result of those volumes. And we can break that down by the different payer mixes. Where it gets very complicated is in the supplements, where you have prime. You know, most of it is being allocated to ambulatory, but it affects all the sites. And so how do you then, what is the, pro the proper allocation? So that's where it started getting a little bit confusing. And so we say, you know what, let's just leave revenues out of the picture. Let's focus on volumes, which that's is what we can... That's in supplemental revenues. Yeah, supplemental revenues. Let's, let's focus on what we can control, and let's focus on the volumes, which is what we're managing as an organization as well as the expenses to support those volumes. Yes. And that's what's critical for us to make sure that we have proper expense management to make sure that we're adjusting our resources appropriately to the volumes that we're seeing. And so when we do that, then when we look at the consolidated statement, we can see the performance as we're seeing where we have expenses being properly managed, we're dealing with a revenue challenge, but it's helping to offset some of that, uh, some of that effort. So, and the long and short of it is then it looks to me like Alameda Towns are all there. Yeah, you can't jump. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lovely way to walk you through this. Sorry. Right. Sorry, we should have a good question. I'll walk through quickly. I'll walk through quickly. So, 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 just to note, as part of the 2017, June 2017 financial statements, this report was provided um, that um, basically reflects a facility view of the income statement. And so, if you look, the second column is really small, but um, if you look at the second column from the, the right, that shows Alameda Hospital, and it has, you know, gross charges, 396.7 million, net patient services revenue of 83.5, um, it showed 22.9% in supplemental revenue, 102 million um, in, in expense, and a contribution margin of 4.3 million. So this would lead you to believe that Alameda Hospital is profitable. Okay? Uh, but it's really not a realistic view of the facility's operations because it doesn't include any of the support services. Yeah, uh, and if you look at the second column from the left, um, which is support services, you see there's $174.6 million in support services costs that belong to each of those facilities. Um, that need to be allocated. And under supplemental revenue is all of the major A. Right. Right. system-wide, right? Yes. System-wide, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And 170, um, uh, all of major A is offset against that support services revenue in this, in this um, presentation, um, leaving 60 million that's unallocated. So, um, the thing is that, that the revenues that are generated by Alameda Hospital for Medicare, Medi-Cal, commercial payers are supposed to cover the support of support, the support services costs because that's included, I mean, those are expected um, services that are included in those rates. So information technology, billing and collections, administration, all of that is supposed to be covered, you know, so we need to have that allocated to have a true picture of um, the facility. So this is what was shown um, to Finance Committee um, in May as part of the March financial statements. So you can see on the, the line for Alameda Hospital um, that they are not showing a contribution um, and it's still not having the, the allocation of support services. So it's, it's a little bit of a different variance, I mean, uh, uh, presentation that was being shown at the, the prior year. And I think that was, again, um, the conversation at Finance Committee about, well, what's going on with Alameda. 
Um, and again, this is not a true um, picture of the finances for the facility. So how do we get a true picture, right? So um, first we need to allocate the overhead costs um, from support services from that SBU out to the facilities. And that's done using a methodology required by CMS, Medicare, Medi-Cal um, claiming. So last time that this was done for fiscal year 17, um, the staff's actually still doing, working on fiscal year 18 reports. Um, but it's the, we do a home office cost report that's required and, and those costs are allocated. Some, you know, some, it's a direct allocation, there's indirect allocations, there's, you know, things that happen, but it basically takes all those support services and puts them out to the various facilities. So in fiscal year 17, which was the last year that was done, um, Alameda Hospital received 13.8% of the support services costs. So basically, in trying to do a, a calculation to see how we did for fiscal 18, we took 13.8% of the support services cost just because that's what happened. That was the last best information that we know. Oh, that 174. Yes. So the, the, we, what we did was we looked at um, how all of the support services, what was done in the, um, the home office cost report, how much was actually given to Alameda Hospital. We took that as a percentage of the total in the support services cost center, and then we did the same thing for fiscal year 18. Um, and then in order to do, determine the, the cost per service type or the cost per to allocate overhead and um, uh, the, the amounts that are charged for various patients, you know, in order to figure out what costs go to what programs. Um, basically, we use the, the Medicare cost report, which takes and allocates all of the overhead down to the, um, the revenue-producing departments. And so what we did was we took the fiscal year um, 17 cost-to-charge ratios from the cost report. We adjusted them for the known cost increases, and then we, we used those costs to allocate to charges to make sure that we came out to the total the total amount of costs associated with Al Alameda Hospital after we allocated them. So in terms of service lines for Alameda, we basically just broke it out between inpatient, acute services, outpatient services, and then long-term care. Um, and then here just to show you the, the estimation of the support service allocation, um, we had uh, for fiscal year 18, this is the breakout by facility, um, and support services were uh, 242 in total, but then we back out the um, outside service costs for the health pack um, because those are, are treated differently in the cost report. And then we also backed out the uh, long-term portion of the uh, pension costs. Um, and then for the balance of that, we took 13.8% and we allocated that over to uh, Alameda Hospital. Then on the revenue side, um, the net patient uh, service revenue is calculated, you know, at the count payer level. Um, for fiscal year 17, we know what net patient services revenue because we, we know what we collected and actually it was a little bit higher than what had been reported back in, in 2017. Um, and then for supplemental revenues, in some cases they're facility specific. Um, for example, the 8915 calculation for um, 
uh, Medi-Cal outpatient supplemental is specific to that facility. The SNF supplemental is specific to that facility. Um, and then system level revenue would have to be allocated. So some of the fiscal year 17 um, and most of the uh, fiscal year 18 revenues are actually estimated at this point. It's basically what we booked for the year. Um, and then because of the 8085 realignment redirection, the major A allocations are done last because we, we actually allocate everything out and then we allocate major A last to kind of fill in the uncompensated costs from everything that we don't, um, we don't get paid for. Okay. Um, and because of the, the timing involved in doing actually the allocation of all the supplemental revenues, I only did that, that allocation for fiscal year 18. Then this just shows you how the allocation of the supplemental revenues was done. Um, again, AB 915 and SNF supplementals, um, Alameda district, uh, the district tasks, those are all direct to um, Alameda Hospital. Yeah, that's the partial um, tax. So then um, anything that was Medi-Cal managed care, basically we allocated based on charges, all Medi-Cal managed care charges across the system. Um, then HPAC, because of the, the vast majority of the, the services are provided through Highland and the ambulatory clinics, and also high, um, the Highland, we have the outside medical services cost. So we cover the outside medical services cost, and then we put the rest of HPAC to um, to the Highland Hospital. And then the GPP was allocated based on the uninsured um, HPAC and restricted Medi-Cal um, uncompensated cost. Um, and then Major A filled in the gaps. So this is the fiscal year 17, just so that you could get an idea of what it looked like. Um, the net patient services revenue overall was, you know, $84.6 million. That's actual payments um, on the accounts. Um, and then the cost, we allocated this by, um, by payer and by, by service. Um, and overall, just without any supplemental um, funding for fiscal year 17, Alameda Hospital lost uh, almost $42 million. The same thing was done for fiscal year 18, um, and without the supplemental funding, because of increases in cost, it did decreases in what's showing up as net patient services revenue on the um, acute and outpatient um, portions. Um, the uh, income for that loss before supplementals is up to $55 million, fiscal year 18. And then here you can see that um, once the, the supplementals were allocated, um, the net loss actually comes down to $20.9 million. And I'm sorry for the, in the packet, the, the last, the major A allocation for somehow didn't get included in the total. Um, and, so I, and so it was it was a higher number, it was 33 million, it's actually 20. Um, so I didn't get the correction to uh, Lona for the packet in, in time. So this is actually, it's, it's $20.9 million. And essentially, that net loss is actually the loss on Medicare and insurance patients that they don't, they can't get an allocation of the supplemental revenues because other than um, major, or sorry, the, um, the tax 
on the district, there's nothing that can cover those services. Because those are the contracted rates. But they're contracted rates and they're not indigent patients. Mm -hmm. So they're not Medi-Cal managed care or they're not indigent, there's nothing that can cover them. For apples and apples, the allocation of hospital fee, is that the parcel tax? No, the hospital fee, that's the, um, it's another Medi-Cal supplemental program. So where do we find the Alameda Hospital District tax? Thank you. That's the 5.1 million. Yeah. And you still put it all towards them because that's the... They get it all. Right. And what's the time frame on that one? Is it sunset? It's just an authority until the voters, unless and until the voters change it. And it's based on a percentage of the assessed value dollars per household. Oh, so it's a fixed amount? Yeah. There's no... Oh, you I think it... Does it escalate a little bit? No, I think it's a fixed amount. I think it escalates because the number of households grow. I see. Yeah. If I understand correctly, it's 298 per household. Yeah, it is pretty much. you get... We know some folks who live in Alameda. Okay. Got it. Just to clarify, um, you know, the the flip side of the conversation would be you having corporations, a culture where you uh, go after lost leaders, if you will. And we don't have that here. Right. And we're not, this is not an exercise to try to get us there. I just want to clarify that. Yeah. It's to sort of clarify where, you know, how it really works if we were to pull something out of our system and look at it. Mm -hmm. And vice versa, yeah, if, 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 if there was any desire to pull out what it might look like. Because this would, so for example, for, for Alameda, if they were to pull out, there are supplementals here that they only get by virtue of being in the system. Their losses would be uh, even higher uh, if they weren't on this construct. Uh, so uh, it really was an exercise to make sure that uh, uh, people who uh, feel unfair had gotten a mistake in the question that things were uh, uh, a lot different and uh, in a discrete fashion can see based off of a very technical uh, approach to applying revenue and expenses that uh, there's a different reality than some people might there's, there's the There's the supplementals that would be impacted. There's the designation as a public hospital that would be impacted. Correct. And this so does not, to, yeah. correct, which would affect the rates. And this also does not include any capital that we have invested as a health system for the uh, deferred maintenance that occurred for, for, for decades at the facility. So this is not, this, none of this is included as far as uh, the tens of millions that we've invested in capital. Right. right. So and the and the uh, debt that was retired at, at the acquisition, uh, as well as the better commercial rates that are, have been put in place in the last year. Right. Well, there's got to be some economies of scale too on the shared services side. And that, uh, right. Right. which they have to understand. And of course, the EHR is just I don't know, how how do you even value that? Yes. Right. Okay, it's a sobering reality, but it's one that we're asked to provide. So. And we'll provide it to them. 
Uh, yes, next month. Yes, month. Yes, yes, the district meeting is on the 10th, and I'll be presenting this information. Uh, did we attempt to spread the cost of the EHR investment across sites? It's capitalized right now yeah. Yeah, because it's still in process. Okay. So, yeah. But when you begin to look at going yeah. in mean, as a single, uh, single site, right? Right. Yeah, you know. And I guess to point, too, like there's other capital investments. Uh, this is all operating, and this is for one year. Yeah. So it's not just the EHR, but other capital investments that have been made. Uh, I mean, the whole campus has been up, not upgraded, but cosmetically improved, and there was a significant investment in not just the, uh, the physical uh, building, but also uh, beds and other uh, things uh, that happened over the years. And now we're building a new kitchen and a morgue right next door to each other. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> the kitchen, just the kitchen. <laughs> not the morgue. Not the morgue. <laughs> because there's no requirement to relocate it where it's currently at, it's fine. So we've yeah. left that and we've removed that from the scope of service and we're just focusing on the kitchen. Oh, cool. Oh. So we, we have the, uh, 25 minutes to get started a bit, so I'm going to yes. move this on. Because uh, Ron is going to prove to us to if you go past to me. So proceed. Well, I will uh, you continue with your report. Please. Wonderful. So I will... I will not reiterate uh, a lot of what uh, Nancy had mentioned. Uh, I, I just want to highlight and the report is in your packets. Uh, the, our, our detailed and what we do is for Trustee Avalera and, and you know, probably this being the first meeting, I, I provided a deeper dive by SBU, breaking down the high-level financials, focusing on volumes and expenses, and how we're operating as a system. Are there any questions regarding that portion of his report? You're stealing all my thunder. I'm sorry. Give us your thunder. He doesn't have a lot of No, no. I, 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 will, I will just highlight like three or four points here. That's it. Okay. Just to further expand on what you guys were doing. Okay. And, and it really expands to what uh, Delvecchi mentioned earlier regarding ambulatory, which was a big focus on that. And so uh, as, as you look at the report broken down by SPU and population, one of the things that I'm very pleased to say is that we filled some of these very difficult uh, to fill vacancies. Uh, so we've made some progress in that regard, and so that's going to help us reduce some of those expenses from the contract management uh, side. In the ambulatory section, uh, to Nancy's point earlier, based on the spread, based on the number of days, about 5% of the total reduction that we're seeing in ambulatory primary care has to do with the number of days in the clinic. And so we've looked at that and we're continuing to drive down. But some of the other things that we've identified is that we have we, we do have some provider uh, vacancies that we're working through that we're looking to fill, and so that's also impacting the primary care. But also we have some data integrity issues that we're working through uh, through our, um, uh, uh, our systems and um, in the clinic that uh, we're, we're, we're working closely with our finance team to kind of make sure that the, the, the charges are being captured. And so, you know, the, the charges, you know, really translate to encounters, encounters translate to visits. And so we're looking at how we're managing all that aspect of it. So there is some, some challenges with that in Ingenious Med, and we're working with our teams to manage that process. In the specialty uh, arena, uh, we're, we're focusing on, we have several providers that, uh, that uh, we're actively recruiting. And 
uh, that's impacting, you know, a large number of visits, about 332 visits. So that's, you know, some of the big drivers for the ambulatory. It's specifically there. I mean, that like you mentioned, although we did see, or, and we did budget an increase in primary care visits, we did budget a decrease, a slight decrease in specialty visits on our budget. And so uh, the fact that we're underperforming in both is something that we're really diving into, making sure we're managing that closely. Uh, in the acute, I just want to highlight the fact that, you know, I meant to mention the acute care services, the, the large, you know, one of the largest units and the highest dollar value of, the, of our units. All of our volumes were up. Every indicator was up. Patient dates was up, discharges was up, you know, length of stay was up. Everything was up, meaning that we've got sicker patients, we've got them staying at the hospital a little bit longer, mm -hmm. and we've got very, very busy operation going on in the inpatient setting. That then translates to slightly higher increase in cost. But although our costs were higher, it's directly related and offset by the volumes that we're seeing, mm -hmm. which it really continues to emphasize the great work that's happening at the operational level with the teams to manage their resources effectively and flexing appropriately. So they're bringing in staff to support the volume, and they're flexing staff when they don't have that volume. So they continue to do really, really good work in that area. I, I, I recall uh, a trustee one day saying very astutely that uh, it's, it's math, not operations. Well, now we've aligned math with operations, and we're seeing some great things happen. So we're managing it very closely. We have transparency. People have credibility in the data, and we're managing effectively to make sure that we continue to sustain the operation. Well, it seemed like a big improvement over when I first started coming in. We were struggling with that. So Significant. So I'm, I'm very pleased to, to see that, and uh, we continue to work hard. And then lastly, in post-acute, Although we are seeing, and we saw it, you know, something that may have stuck out for you all when you looked at your report, that the number of discharges were significantly below budget. That is a, a result of our spread. Uh, what we're seeing, when we look at year-to-date, we're managing and we're tracking uh, our, our performance. In fact, um, a sneak peek of October, we've already surpassed uh, not only the performance of October, but also we've surpassed year-to-date. So, post-acute has been very, very busy. We've been very, very full, and uh, we're continuing to manage that operation very effectively have a great team up there with Richard and, and the staff. So that's all I wanted to highlight from that report. Uh, unless there's uh, any other questions or something that you saw that I can further elaborate on, I'm happy to do so. Questions? I have no questions. Please. No questions. No questions. I have many questions. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. So I uh, transition to the next topic. Yes. Uh, so I, I like to uh, just, this was one of our um, updates that we wanted to provide the board, if you recall, uh, some context and history. We, uh, we engaged in an agreement uh, back in December of 2017 with our group purchasing organization and our partners at Busy and Inc. This is uh, what we, uh, the goal here today was to kind of share with you what was, you know, kind of just a real quick recap of where we were, what, who visited this and what the GPO does for the organization, as well as providing you with some other key deliverables that were part of that contract that was approved in December, and then how we're performing to date on every single one of those areas. Again, just about Vizient, uh, they're the group purchasing organization. The way this works is essentially you're capitalizing on the purchasing power of multiple members of this organization. So they have one of the largest portfolios uh, across the nation within our group purchasing organizations. If you recall back in December, I had mentioned that Vizient is now a, a, a group of what used to be independent GPOs. Uh, Med Assets, Innovation, uh, uh, UHS, uh, or UHC, um, uh, Med Assets, now they're all Vizient. And so the two largest ones uh, are Vizient and Premier. 
are the kind of the two largest players in the group purchasing organization in the world. BizEnd has a tremendous amount of purchasing power of over $100 billion uh, within their entire network. They're industry leading in pharmacy programs. They, they provide great services and support related to pharmacy and equally analytics. And if you recall, part of our contract was broken down into two components. We had the group purchasing component and we had the analytical component. They provided us with a suite of analytics that allowed us to, to start drilling down on the operations to help us make some decisions on how we're moving forward as an organization. So, the key deliverables of that project, one of the key focus areas uh, outside of the great benefits of becoming part of the organization, was that they identified and committed to guaranteed savings of $7.7 .7 million over three years. First year, front-loaded, there was a tremendous amount of work that was going to go into identifying some of those opportunities, and a lot of this was largely driven by capitalizing upon the visient umbrella breaking away from the legacy smaller uh, GPO component net assets, which we were with. So when we came under Vizient, we went from buying widget A on tier five, we would then went to Vizient under tier eight. And so the same widget, now it's costing us much less because of that purchasing power. So that was a large component of the GPO, but on top of that, there was a tremendous amount of work that was done by Vizient to focus on several key areas, pharmaceuticals being one of them, and we've identified some significant savings in those areas. Secondly, there was a, the component of the shared administrative fee. So this administrative fee, which is paid by the vendors to the GPO to participate in the program, when based on our spend, we receive and we recover a portion of that administrative fee. And then we implemented several analytical tools focusing on our clinical, operational, and our supply chain uh, operation. So where are we at on our financial improvements? Again, your one goal, as you recall, 5.2 million by December 31st. This is where we're at right now. We have identified and have processed uh, nearly $8.5 million, $8.44 million. So we have already, in year one, exceeded a three-year target. But the work doesn't stop. And, and I know that I have uh, my, my busy partner sitting back in the back out there, and, and he knows that uh, I, I keep the, the pedal to the metal, and I expect to continue to see great savings over the next couple of years because we have yet to address all of our contracts and all of our areas. But again, great work happening in there, and I also have to commend Diana, sitting back behind me here, she is our system director of pharmacy. She has done phenomenal work in this area as we've been looking at our GPO and our wholesale acquisition cost pricing and our accumulations that contribute to this whole process and our charge capture. So they've done phenomenal work where we've realized significant savings and opportunities to improve our operation in that area. The administrative shareback, just to give you a sense of what we were seeing in years past, the trend here, we were seeing about half a million, uh, 16, 17, and then thus far in 18, we're looking at 662,000, and the year's not over yet. So again, because of our spend, because of this renegotiated contract, that's one of the added benefits, and it's, we're seeing these additional dollars coming into the organization. We, uh, uh, we, we initiated several tools, uh, clinical database, which is focusing on benchmarking quality and outcome measures. That is more of a clinically driven database that allows us to look at our operation, which clinical database is aligned with our service line analytics. And what this allows us to do is it, 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 you are able to look at a particular DRG or a particular procedure and say, hmm, 
how well do I do in total hip replacements compared to other hospitals in the nation? Not only from a quality perspective, but from a supply perspective, but from a cost perspective. And so this is really helping and shining the light, and we're able to see this not only by procedure, but also by provider. So when I can go back and say, why is uh, Dr. Smith not, uh, you know, costing us $5,000 for a procedure when Dr. You know, Fonseca is, is costing us 3000 And so this is really some uh, analytics that helps us, you know, shine the light on where do we have opportunities, where does the variability exist, and how can we drive these improvements. Then you have the operational database, which is what we call Action Align. Action Align is our benchmarking tool as we're looking at largely productivity and staffing resources. This is where we're at on every single one of those, just to give you a sense of the implementation of all those and how we are tracking. We've completed uh, pretty much all of the, uh, all of the uh, implementations with the exception of the CDB and SLA, which we're still doing some. There's a tremendous amount of mapping that happens within uh, the clinical database, uh, which Dr. Hussein and the Bella team are working very hard to make sure that we have those proper mappings uh, completed, and we're hoping to get those here across the finish line very, very soon. We, we do submit uh, initial runs, and we get information back, we validate the data, we send it back, and we're working through that process now. But everything else has been done, and in the operational database, we've actually received two full quarters of comparison, and we're seeing a third quarter in the next couple of weeks. I'm pleased to say that the trend has been very favorable. It's downward, and it's consistent with what you saw in the financial reports. So great work from the team. So that's all I have on, the, on our Vizient review. Uh, I, I continue to say that this is a, it's been a, a, a great relationship. It's, it's a partnership. We're focusing on continuing to improve our, our operations, and uh, they've been instrumental in helping us identify some cost savings that really have been well needed. Great. Thank you. Question? I have a question. So, you know, one of the things that keeps coming up in the uh, finance committee as we are looking at uh, some of these great purchasing uh, contracts that come through that process is that where does, when we work with the GPO as an anchor institution, in this partnership, where is their ethos with making sure that they are local as much as possible, so our mission and their mission also kind of um, come together so we understand that you know, we have the, uh, the efficiencies of scale because you've acquired a lot of the smaller GPOs and things, but how does that, how do we also um, uh, ensure that some of these, as we are looking to get the best value for our money, that we also balance that with uh, you know, making sure that, that uh, we are focusing local as much as we possibly can within that system. Absolutely. And I, well, I will, what I will say is that, uh, that that is one of our values, and that is something that we have communicated very clearly to Vizient. Vizient has a, have, they have a dedicated arm of their program that focuses on diversity and focuses on, you know, these components looking at local vendors and local resources and how we can help facilitate them becoming part of these, uh, you know, not only proposals, but also part of the competitive process related to, you know, the, the efforts and, and procurement efforts of the organization. They also work on seeing how they can help facilitate them becoming part of the group purchasing organization that then not only supports their efforts of, of uh, meeting their, you know, their targets for, for diversity, but also it helps, 
you know, those local vendors potentially gain a much larger market that they can be part of and that they can continue to expand and grow. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that we're looking at. What I will say is that uh, in January, uh, Mike and I will be presenting our local vendor, local vendor strategy and program in much, much more detail, and part of that is some of the great work that's happening right now with Vizient and our partnership to really continue to solidify that uh, anchor mission. Okay, great. Is that in this committee? Yes, sir. It'll be, it'll be in this committee in, in January. It was, it was too difficult to get it, but then Mike, unfortunately, had a conflict, so he's not here, and we just thought it was a bit too heavy of a loaded agenda. Or to not. <laughs> yeah, a loaded agenda, and, and I just thought it needed to be here for the discussion. Yes. Um, and, and so we'll be presenting that in, in January. Yeah, we just want to hear how, you know, business is being proactive mm -hmm. and dealing with our local vendors. Okay. Great. Absolutely. Look forward to that. Look forward. Thank you. Keep going. Okay. Let's move on. So I think I'm still on the agenda here. I can, I can continue very quickly here. So uh, this is just to provide you with, uh, we've identified several contracts, you know, key contracts to the organization uh, that affect operations and, and, and clinical operations. Um, this is our linen provider, linen processing provider, Angelica Services. This is to give you a sense of, of the, um, the agreement itself, and it's a retrospective review, recognizing that our contract will be coming up for, uh, will be expiring here in 2019. This was, an, originally was a, a five-year term, dating back August 2014 through July 31st, 2019. They had identified uh, some uh, anticipated costs for years one through five, with the deliverables focusing on some estimated savings based on the transition from uh, oil the linen to renting the linen uh, for, for, for those services, and then laundry management services across the facility. Uh, this was approved in July of 2014. So now when we do the retrospective review and we're looking at how the program performed, we see that there were some uh, some ramp up uh, there was a ramp up period in year one uh, where we only spent about almost a million dollars, the 1.6, and then we stabilized at 3.7 million. But that's significantly higher than what was anticipated under the original estimate and the original uh, uh, scope review. There's some there's some some reasons for that. Uh, they did achieve those savings that they had identified at 363000 The costs weren't achieved in years two to four, uh, and we don't expect to achieve those, those, uh, those estimated dollars in year five as well. Why is that? Well, in year one, we had several components that, that affected this, and so as we're drilling down and we're looking at why did this happen, why did we overspend, there were several components to that. Uh, you know, we, we transitioned. Uh, to a rental program, so they took on all of our linen and we brought in the, the linen as part of our rental program. But we also uh, focused on adding some of our facilities to that and the transition into the ACT was a big component of it. Part of the transition to the new acute care tower when we opened it up, part of the licensing requirement for opening up a new acute care facility is that you have to have a completely outfit like if you're ready to provide services. So essentially, we were running two complete hospitals, two linen operations at the same time. And so as we were ramping up, we were outfitting all of the spaces. You have to have all linen closets filled, all beds made, everything ready to go. So when licensing walks out the door, you can see a patient right then and there. And so that contributed to a significant amount of uh, expense to managing the old hospital plus the new hospital. Equally going into the new hospital, there were some, some challenges related to just
just geographically. I think there are benefits to our patients, but it creates some operational challenges where in the old facility you had large wards. Now you have all private rooms, and so the lending utilization for all the rooms, it's just, it changes the dynamic. That was not considered when the contract was put into place. So those are some of the, the, some of the, the, the key drivers that, that affected that. Um, and then we also saw some increases in, in cost uh, just as a result of, uh, you know, the utilization of lending in some of our areas, more specifically in our procedure areas and also in John George. So again, we you know we also saw some high volumes due to the high, you know we had a very heavy flu season over the last couple of years you know usually November through through March last year actually last year was actually a little longer went through like April uh, we were very very busy so again there were several variables regardless this is an area of concern one of the things that we need to do and we'll continue to do is we're monitoring um, you know the performance of the agreement to make sure that they stay within their targets and that we're continuing to look for ways to improve the operation. But one of the things that needs to happen is that we will be coming back to this body for approval to increase the delegated authority because the increases that were realized, or the, the increased expenses that were realized over the first several years are going to exceed the initial capacity or delegated authority that was provided by the board back in 2014. So we'll be coming back to you all for an approval to, ex, you know, to extend, not the contract, but extend our delegated authority, our spend authority, but while we're also concurrently working on a formal RFP process to look at bringing in uh, a vendor, Angelica or anyone else, uh, at that point that goes through that RFP process. So we'll be set ready to go for, our, for an August 1st go live. When's that RFP going to come out? No, we'll start, yeah, we'll, we'll start that RFP probably uh, in the first part of the year, probably February or so. Uh, give ourselves enough time to not only go through the process, do the review, the assessment, the recommendation, and then the transition should there be a transition. I'm sorry if I could. So did this um, amount, since you're going to have to come back to us for authority, the, the amount's going to exceed whatever contingency you built in. Not you, because it wasn't you. <laughs> Nor was it you, because this was 2014. But uh, did it, it's going to exceed that contingency, right? There was no contingency built into this agreement. Oh. However, there was an anticipated spend, and they, they, they had no built-in contingency. And is this a local vendor? They are, uh, well, they're, they're, they're a national vendor, but, national they, but they have local, they, they have a local market. Yes, they do. Huh? Right. Okay. Uh, so, but they, they, they're huge. I mean, Jessica yeah. is, is, is nationwide, and they do have a large processing plant here locally. They have one in, in Gilroy. They have one in this. They, 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 they provide services to most hospitals, healthcare hospitals. You know. I was just curious. Do you have so, so that's what we'll, that's what we'll come to expect in January. Sorry, you guys. Do you expect with the Z now on board that you'll see a new host of competitors with the new RFP that'll? Uh, Absolutely. We will certainly leverage their their support and, and engaging in the in the formal RFP process to look at current uh, uh, participants of the GPO and make sure that we're looking at all of those uh, to get us the best price. And part of this, part of this program, and you know, part of you know my experience in the past working with these types of vendors, it's you know there, there's a lot of performance at risk metrics that you can put into place to make sure that there's there's skin in the game to make sure that they're not just processing linen, but that they're looking for ways to look at improving the utilization of that linen. Okay, good. Let's move on to our contracts. Okay, which one's the first one? Is this is Premier the first company? Premier is the first, yes. Perfect. So I've got I've got uh, 
I'm on a roll here. Yeah, I've got that. So before you and in your packet is the uh, is our proposal to move forward with parking services with Premier as we have presented last month. Several things that I wanted to just highlight uh, from our discussions in, in last uh, in our last meeting, and, and I wanted to make sure that we provide some additional clarification. I think it's important to really set the stage and and and, and provide a. a somewhat of an explanation of our processes and how we, under the enabling legislation, what we can do as an organization that is somewhat different from what other public agencies must do, like the county or other organizations. Uh, in your package, also Mike put together a very comprehensive memo uh, that, that speaks to some of this, but I really want to reemphasize the, the fact that as an organization and as a hospital authority, we have the ability to follow two different processes. Process number one, which is a solicitation for proposals, and process number two, which is somewhat informal. Process number two, which is a formal RFP process, the bid process. And so those are, those are two mechanisms that we leverage as, as an organization. And in fact, in, in January, this will be part of that very detailed uh, uh, presentation where we will, we will share and we will communicate at what point we leverage one or the other. And, and we have policies and procedures in place as an organization that guide that process. In this particular case, we went through the informal bid solicitation or proposal solicitation process. And I, I don't know if that was clear last time, and so I wanted to make sure that, because that was a point of concern that was raised by uh, the incumbent, uh, Douglas Parking in his public comment, where he had indicated that, you know what, I received an email, and although that wasn't completely accurate either, but they received a tremendous amount of information. Uh, that really broke down the process and, and, and questions detailing exactly what the scope of services were going to be. But it wasn't under a very formal, prescriptive RFP process that you would see either with you know, the county of, uh, of Alameda or city of Oakland or Stanford. Right? They were very prescriptive in those processes. So when we, uh, we went back and we looked at, uh, at this uh, at disagreement, uh, based on the feedback and the recommendation from this body, from this board, we went and we reviewed the, uh, the criteria. Once again, we looked at the two proposals. We vetted every single one of the proposals line by line. And we actually brought the two vendors in to meet with us to make sure that we had an opportunity to listen to their concerns and make sure that we didn't miss something, that they were able and had a, a fair and, and equal opportunity to communicate to us where they thought were some, some differences within the process that, uh, that they felt was creating an inequity. I, I am very pleased to say that uh, after that meeting, there really was no inequity. There was no, uh, no now they weren't in agreement, but there was, they acknowledged and said that there was no inequity and that everything was compared apples to apples and that we were able to move forward in this direction. Of keynote, uh, the, 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 the delta in the proposals was largely driven by three components. Component number one was overhead, overhead and management. One of them, the incumbent, came in at 90,000 per year versus the other 48,000 per year. Now, as part of this evaluation, they came back and they self-disclosed that they made a mistake themselves and double counted an item, so their management fee was actually 82,000, not 90. Okay, so we made an adjustment for that and we said that's fine. We'll, we'll make this adjustment and we'll look at it from 82 versus 48. There's still a pretty significant delta. The second component was in shuttle service. 
the shuttle service was there was a delta of almost two hundred thousand dollars between the two vendors over the life of the project per, per year or total total and this was again based on maintenance shuttle rental routes and technology so when we looked at that we said well that that's that's a big one and lastly the last component was on the technology that was being implemented uh, across the facility. And so when you look at that, and I think those are very important points because one of the concerns that was raised initially by the incumbent was that is, these, is, is this being done on the backs of the employees? The answer was no. The savings are in these large overhead buckets that have nothing to do with the employees. When we looked at the breakdown of staffing, the staffing was equal across both there was a delta of like a 0.6 FDE, actually in the incumbent, lower, and the dollars for uh, pay rate for each of those FDEs was exactly the same. So again, when we looked at everything in, as a whole, we looked at the package once again, uh, we felt that uh, the review not only was comprehensive, was equitable, and was consistent with what we had uh, communicated uh, to, the, to the board. And so based on all of that, I once again would like to make a recommendation to uh, move this forward for uh, board approval. Thank you. Um, so let's go to questions. I have a question regarding the analysis of the budget. There's a capital investment question here. Yes, sir. Okay. I don't believe you touched on that. A big difference in assumptions. Correct. So, so two bids. Perfect. Let me expand on that. So there was, uh, as part of the part of the proposal process, the um, entities, the proposers, uh, were asked to provide us with uh, ways to continue to improve our program and how they can continue to add value to the organization. They each did a walkthrough. They evaluated the condition of some of our equipment, uh, or all of our equipment, our pay stations, our gate arms, our, you know, our guard houses, things of that nature. And they each incorporated into their proposal what steps they would take to go ahead and not only improve and enhance that technology, but also what other items they could add to make sure that we can streamline the program. In this particular case, they both added some components to that. The incumbent, Douglas Parking incorporated it into their overall fee. Premier had it, had it included as an added value at no cost to AHS. So they committed to $317,000 or so of improvements, capital improvements that would be at no cost to the organization. So when under the incumbent, it was part of their overall lump sum price, which then is impacted by the escalators year over year, it's costing me that plus escalators versus this is at the at the no cost. And that was a point of, of discussion. And when we met with the groups, we further validated. And in fact, we have confirmed with Premier that they are not only putting those $317,000 capital improvements dollars at risk, they're also guaranteed that if they are not able to execute on those improvements they committed to, by a defined time frame, which is March of next year, they will give us those dollars equal in value. So it's a true guarantee. So that's something that we're looking at moving forward with there. So that's the, the, the difference in the capital improvements and how this was really laid out based on added value to the customer. Thank you. Other questions? Uh, you know, I, I think that, that you've done due diligence and certainly you've met now with Douglas. You've given them an opportunity to review once again. And I think that should satisfy 
uh, at least I was that they were given kind of that opportunity. Am I correct? I believe so. Uh, they, they, again, they, I have to honestly say that, uh, I mean, they're, they're, they're disappointed that, uh, you know, we've, we've decided to move in a different direction. I think they realize that uh, they, they could have taken a slightly different approach in their proposal, but that's kind of the process of going through the proposals. You have to, they did feel that you gave them the opportunity did. To, to not only disclose to them kind of what additional information they may have needed to, to make kind of a very informed, right? Correct. On this. We did. We and went, that was and we went, and we went line by line. We went line by line on all the different areas and the points that they had some concerns with. We equally asked them what other questions they had. And I would say that we, at that meeting, communicated to them that we were going to be presenting at this, at this session. And not seeing them here today, I think, to me, is an indicator that they've come to realize. And I will also speak to the fact that, and, and truly, uh, we said it at the last meeting, and I'll say it again, this is really not a reflection of their performance. They're a wonderful company. They've done amazing work over the last several years and continue to work. And in fact, in good faith, they have allowed us to move forward with an extension of the current agreement, which expires end of this month, to allow for a seamless transition to the new vendor. Yeah. And so kudos to them for doing that. And they've been very, very supportive in that effort. And just to clarify, this is a three-year contract. Correct. Assuming we approve this tonight, or move forward to the board. Um, and in three years, you'll be going out to bed again. We will solicit, proposal. we will solicit proposals, and at, at that point, I would hope to see Douglas back in the running with a very aggressive proposal that we can consider. Yeah. There's a significant difference in the capital improvements contracts. So. Yeah. I think, and I think that's where Douglas, um, from what, because they, they reached out to me and said, look, we, we, we can make an offer, you know, uh, that would be the same price, but they don't, they don't believe that the capital investment free by Premier is real. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's just that's their contention, right? So, so be it. But, but I, I, and I, I will re-emphasize, that was brought up at the meeting. Right. And as a result of that, Premier, in writing, communicated with our legal counsel that they said, we will put it at risk. If right. we don't deliver, right. I'll, get, I'll write you a check. I think that's the ultimate point. You can't negotiate a position. You can't. Yeah. 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 And I, I kept trying to get at understanding what that was, and, and it seemed to be much more informal and fluid. And so your clarification this evening that there, that's not what this was, this is basically a bid-seeking process, um, is, is really important uh, to understand. Can I ask this follow-up? So I, I wonder, you, you said there's also there are there is a more formal RFP process. Correct. When do you trigger that um, over the more informal uh, bidding? Well, there, there's, there's several components to that, and, and uh, I mean, in fact, I can ask Ira to, to speak to that if you don't, if, if sure. I don't want to put you on the spot. But, uh, but I will also qualify that in January, we plan to get into very uh, detailed discussion on how this comes together and how our policies are informed by that. But we can give a high level. 
be happy to do so. Yeah, maybe we're just high level. I have to present at the police commission, so I'm going to have to beg out of the meeting. Uh, but okay. I support the the, the the staff position to to. Uh, yeah. Um, so we could, contract. We could uh, take a motion. And if you don't mind, just I'd like to Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'll make a motion to, to approve this legislation. Any seconds? Uh, all those in favor of the motion to approve right. the contract? All right. Thank you. Well, I, I apologize for leaving on time. I'm glad we got the vote before. <laughs> 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 I have very quickly, you want to just a high level? Absolutely. High-level high summary. Um, what we essentially reserve um, currently, the RFP process and all of its formality, is when we would have things such as construction, that would be one key level. Anytime you see construction of significant value, we go to RFP. Um, in addition, it would be anything when the services or what we need to accomplish, which may be the better metric for what we're approaching, is so complex that we may not have the institutional inside knowledge to be able to say, I know how to accomplish this. All I know is I need to accomplish it. So I need to have people who know this business propose to me, as I request for them, RFP, to tell me, how do I get here? I want to go to Grandma's house. Tell me how to get there. Is it a car? Is it a train? Is it a plane? That makes a lot of the figures. That that's, that's high level. Very helpful. Thank you. I just want to, just want to show the clarification in conversation with uh, legal counsel before the meeting about uh, the statute of the state that actually established this healthcare system allowed it to happen, I should say. Um, and to my surprise, there is absolutely no public RFP process uh, required. So, can you speak to what is required to uh, of us? And yes, absolutely. So, uh, that conversation we had previously. Right, uh, as um, Louise alluded to, uh, our AHS is an enabling statute, Health and Safety Code 11850 explicitly carves out the competitive process. Um, meaning AHS is not required to go through the competitive process to an RFP. Um, the RFPs that we do uh, go through, those are uh, our discretion, absolutely our discretion. And when we do uh, put out an RFP, we try to go through the formal process as a you know, a county or uh, we do it. So when we do do it, we do it you know, by governmental uh, requirements. It's really it's a good business practice as opposed to a statutory requirement. Correct. Is it stipulated in our bylaws or anywhere else that we do with a certain dollar amount? Or? Currently, no. We don't, we don't have anything. It, it's in our neighboring statute. But, but it's not, yeah, and it's not, it's not in the, it's not in the board bylaws. It is not anything that's, uh, that's really within the purview of the board in the sense of, from that regard, it's, it's a, it's a hospital policy and procedure that we've defined that is approved by the board. So it's at the discretion of staff. Correct. Correct. And, and general counsel, that really supports that effort because, again, it is, we are, you know, we are the shares of public bonds. But it could be established by board policy as well. Correct. That's what we can say. Policy is something. Right. We can the policy. Correct. We, we would rather have, you know, have you know, an RFP process over a certain dollar amount. We did talk to members. This is the policy that we At some point, it's not tonight. 
No, no, it's back to January. In January, we'll have some discussion, and I think at that point we can really get into the details of, you know, what are we going to look at as part of our policies and procedures. Yeah, you know, that's one of the things that, that you know, again, the, you know, the, the, through the enabling legislation, one of the things that just as a food for thought as we're going through that we'll discuss in detail in January is, you know, the, there is some value to the flexibility. And, and being able to move things quickly across the organization. Mm -hmm. So I just, you know, there's, there's a fine balance there to, to look at that. Wonderful. Yeah, I just quickly wanted to thank you for, for taking all of these steps. And I think it just really underscores what I've been hearing all along about our commitment to really working with local vendors. And it still is a business decision, and so that's understood. But I also believe that the extent to which you explain to the, the vendors and gave them an opportunity is actually a technical assistance that you provided to them, which hopefully will position them better in a few years. So I just want to say that that is an investment on um, your part that I wanted to acknowledge. Thank you. Can I just say, actually, I would, I would share the kudos with the committee uh, because uh, while I think we, we thought we did our best to do that uh, the first time around, we heard uh, the feedback from the community, and we're sensitive to that, not just from your standpoint, but from the vendor community, uh, because this is a value that we want to make sure uh, is associated with OHS, and then, uh, to the extent that any vendor, Douglas or anyone else, felt that our actions didn't reflect that, then that was a problem for us, and you helped us to go back and do this, so, so you know, we, we, you know we, we, we didn't look at this negatively, I think you were caught a little you know, as you were here, it was like, point taken, we, we got some opportunity here, and let's take the time to do it, so, uh, it was definitely the right thing to do, and I think you accomplished that, and I think our reputation in the community will only be enhanced by what you did. Thank you. Wonderful. And with the on, so we have for some more contracts. Is there maybe a motion to uh, approve these three remaining contracts in a bundle? I'm sorry, there's yeah. five remaining contracts in them. I would make a motion that we approve them uh, together. I second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Okay. Wonderful. Let me get back to the agenda here. There. Any uh, discussion of tracking items, issues that we need to track and add? I, I think there was a little input tonight. Yeah, you added one about